The Holy Gospel according to Luke, the first chapter. Glory to you, Lord. In those days, Mary set out and went with haste to a Judean town in the hill country, where she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the child leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why has this happened to me, that the mother of my Lord comes to me? For as soon as I served the sound of your greeting, the child in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things to me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, o Christ. What kind of conservative estimate is that she might have been 15? Possibly younger. In all likelihood, not older. In those days, both social security and homeland security involved having children. And so as soon as a young woman was physically, biologically able to do that, she got engaged and married and started to do that. And she was engaged to be married, we are told. Although that was different than it is for us now. For starters, a bride and groom did not pick each other out um, that was arranged by parents. Sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. You were just looking at me, sweetie. That's not going to happen. We're going to edit that out, okay? I did not just do that. Love, by the way, also was not a requirement for marriage. Uh, not even necessarily an expectation. Love, one could hope, um, would develop in the course of being married. Knowing the person you were marrying wasn't even actually required. Indeed, even meeting the person you were going to marry before you actually married wasn't actually required. But Nazareth was a small town, uh, a few hundred people in those days. Mary probably knew Joseph, at least knew who he was. Perhaps they had talked on occasion but that would have been in some settings where others were present. There are traditions which say that Joseph was older than Mary, although the biblical evidence for that is, is all circumstantial. 
There are also traditions, later traditions, with actually no biblical evidence, circumstantial or otherwise, which say that Joseph was a lot older than Mary, and in fact, that he was a widower with children of his own from a previous marriage. Those later traditions developed concurrent with theological assumptions that people began to wrap around Mary as the Christian faith developed, including the assumption that she wasn't just a virgin when he was born. She, as the mother of our Lord, remained a virgin her whole life long, for her womb was surely too holy for the likes of anyone else, not to mention her body being too holy for the physical acts that would have been required for the conceiving of anyone else. And so went this emerging line of really assumption-driven theology when the Bible does later on refer to the fact that Jesus had siblings it's actually referring to the children from Joseph's first marriage. Because when it comes to the holiness of the Blessed Virgin's holy womb, Jesus had to have been her one and only. The conclusion of that line of thinking is that Joseph and Mary's marriage was never consummated. They were celibate and agreed to that relationship. As cities go, Nazareth, as I said, was more of a small town than a city, and uh, sophisticated big city folks in places like Jerusalem, if they thought about Nazareth at all, uh, thought of it oftentimes disparagingly. One of them, for example, a man by the name of Nathaniel, who actually went later on to become one of Jesus' disciples. When he first heard of Jesus and heard where he was from, he said, and this is really kind of a snooty question, he said, can anything good come from Nazareth? Nazareth was in the region of Galilee, well to the north of Judea uh, and Jerusalem, the city in Judea, and there was a wall separating them. The wall being Samaria, where Samaritans lived. Samaritans being people whom good religious people in places like Jerusalem avoided. Galileans living on the other side of the people whom good people avoided weren't viewed by folk in Jerusalem as negatively as Samaritans, but they weren't looked upon with any particular admiration either because they lived out there on the clear other side of Samaria boonies. Plus they talked funny with a recognizable accent that people in Judea could recognize immediately and, and make fun of. The Judean Jews, I imagine, imagined that Galileans lived in trailers and they had cars on blocks in, in their front yards, had been for years. Which, if nothing else, was at least better than how Judean Jews imagined Samaritans, which was that they were unclean and contact with them would make you unclean. And the uncleanness was something that was meant religiously, as in even God didn't want these people around. Well, beyond all of that 
regional drama, there was the bigger picture, that being that all of them, Judeans, Galileans, and Samaritans, all of them, ruled by Herod the Great, were in fact not anything great at all on the world stage, for Herod's kingdom was a subservient little puppet kingdom on the far fringes of the mighty world power whose center was absolutely not Jerusalem, it was Rome. Where the emperor was Augustus, whose official title was Imperator Caesar Divi Filius, i.e. Commander Caesar, son of a god. To this 15-year-old or so Galilean girl living on the far side of the fringes of nowhere came, says Luke, not the mighty commander Caesar, so-called son of a god, but rather God Almighty's mighty archangel Gabriel to tell her that the plan that God had been planning and promising for centuries, God's promise being to save not just the Jews but the whole world from their sin, which of course is by and large to save from themselves, was a promise about to be fulfilled. And that would happen, said Gabriel to Mary, because she, she of all people, was about to have a baby who was to be the Savior. She said, how can that be? I'm a virgin. I'm not married. Gabriel's answer was that things that can't be can be when God is involved. He then made a political statement, although you wouldn't know it unless you know what Mary knew, and you do now know what Mary knew, that being that Commander Caesar on his throne in Rome was called son of a god. Your son will outrank him, Mary was told by Gabriel, at least between the lines, for he will be called son of the one and only God there is. To which this young virgin living on the far fringes of nowhere then replied, let it be to me according to your word. Which takes us to our text for today where we read that the very first thing Mary immediately did then was to go to see a considerably older Relative, We don't exactly know what kind of relative. I'm thinking because of their age difference, there was a once removed or even twice removed somewhere in their relationship. But her name was Elizabeth, and she lived in the country of Judea, the region of Judea, on the other side of Samaria, and who herself, Gabriel had told Mary, was pregnant with a not just unlikely but miraculous <coughs> pregnancy, Elizabeth being the life long, childless, childless, old woman who was now just starting her third trimester of pregnancy with the child who would come to be remembered as John the Baptist. Mary went to see Elizabeth, Luke says, with great haste. Why the haste, do you suppose? Some suggest fear. 
For Mary now was pregnant, but Mary was still not married. And that was regarded as adultery in those days. And while it wasn't in those days universally enforced anymore, the law was still on the books. That law being the law that adulterers in that case were to be stoned to death. Now that being said, I'm, I'm pretty convinced that, that it wasn't uh, fear that spurned Mary on to go with great haste to see Elizabeth. I think she went spurred on by faith. And we've got some evidence for that coming up. But I think, though it sounded crazy, and I imagine it even sounded crazy to her when she thought about it a little too long, I think she went with haste. The 90 or so miles she actually did go then, because she actually found herself believing that the angel Gabriel, the archangel, had actually appeared to her. And she believed that, that the, what the archangel Gabriel, she believed, had actually said to her. That being that it didn't matter that she was a virgin and never had been with a man. She was going to have a baby, the father of whom would not be a man, but God. Some of whose godness, miraculously and without acts of the flesh, would somehow be enfleshed. In this new life, even now, cell by cell, forming within her. Which I'm pretty sure did at times sound a little bit crazy to Mary, when, when, especially when Gabriel first said it, but she believed it. As she believed the second crazy thing the angel Gabriel had told her, that, that being that her kinswoman Elizabeth, who had never had children, who was now seriously over the hill when it came time to, to a body being able to have children, was miraculously pregnant too. Mary, though that sounded crazy too, nevertheless believed that too. And it was her faith, not fear, that led her with haste to go on that trip to see Elizabeth. It's a trip that even for someone young um, in those days would have taken most of a week. And a week later when she got there, Elizabeth, Luke says, Filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, Luke says, confirms for us that it was faith, not fear, that drove Mary. And confirms for Mary the not crazy truth of every single crazy thing the angel Gabriel had told Mary when, Luke says, immediately upon seeing Mary, Elizabeth said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why has this happened to me, that the mother of my Lord has come to me? For as soon as I heard the sound of your greeting, the child in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. Oh, and just in case Mary needed more than Elizabeth's words, confirming that God was in the miracle business, there was more. For Elizabeth had, and, and Mary knew this, Elizabeth had her whole life long been unable to have 
children, and now here she was, and there it was, it being the bump that Mary with her own eyes could now see and with her own hands, I am sure, now touched. Why did Mary go with haste to see Elizabeth? Because crazier than that crazy story she'd been told by Gabriel was the crazy fact that she found herself believing it. And now was her dear old kinswoman Elizabeth and the bump beneath her breasts. And Mary knew, in this moment, Mary knew things unbelievable are to be believed when God is at work in whatever are the crazy mysterious ways God in God's wisdom chooses. And with crazy joy now wrapped around the craziness of her faith, Mary broke into song then. We aren't told if the lyrics were spontaneous, inspired by the Holy Spirit all at once then, or if the lyrics were something she'd been thinking of for most of a week now as she walked from her home in Nazareth to Elizabeth's home in the Judean hill country. What we are told is that whether it was spontaneously, instantly, or week-long, <coughs> thoughtfully, Mary then broke into song praising the God who was at work in her, of all people, to turn the sin-broken craziness of this world and its people upside down by turning the world in the direction of not sin, but of love. song might have gone something like this. My soul proclaims your greatness, O God, and my spirit rejoices in you. You have looked with love on your spirit, your servant here, and blessed me all my life through. Great and mighty are you, O Holy One, strong is your kindness evermore. How you favor the weak and lowly one, humbling the proud of heart. You have cast the mighty down from their thrones and uplifted the humble of heart. You have filled the hungry with wondrous things and left the wealthy no part. Great and mighty are you, O faithful one. Strong is your justice, strong your love. As you promised to Sarah and Abraham, kindness forevermore. My soul proclaims your greatness, O God, and my spirit rejoices in you. You have looked with love on your servant here and blessed me all my life through. That song of Mary is remembered because of the first word in the Latin translation. Uh, it's kind of known as the Magnificat. That being the Latin version of the NRSV translation, my soul magnifies the Lord, which the beautiful lyrics of the choir version and the, and the Holden Evening Prayer version faithfully and beautifully translate, my soul proclaims your greatness, O God, O blessed virgin. 
Oh, blessed woman, blessed girl, blessed mother of our Lord. The greatest event ever in the history of the world is now conceived within you. And you don't sing one single note about the greatness of you. You sing of, you magnify, you proclaim the greatness of God. God who, if the soon emergent bump in your belly is to be believed, is the kind of God who comes to turn this world and its sin-infected ways and its sin-poisoned power-structured ways upside down by tearing down the thrones and towers and hate and hubris of those who call themselves great, instead to raise up with love those whose needs are great, and whom this sin-broken world's so-called great ones are great at using and or abusing and or ignoring, while they build more castles and moats to keep the masses away and at bay. Sisters and brothers, it is Advent yet. It is the church's pregnant season. The season when the church is expecting. The church's eyes and hearts and hopes in this season focused on what God has promised to and yet will birth. God will birth, says Mary's song. What God has already conceived, says Mary's womb, that being love for those who most need loving and help for those who most need helping and comfort for those who most need comforting and refuge for those who most need refuging and mercy for those who are currently being treated mercilessly and justice for those upon whom the world is currently heaping injustice. What God will birth, in other words, what God has in fact already conceived, in other words, is the kingdom of heaven coming to and having its way with and turning absolutely upside down as needed us and our sin-broken world and its sin-infested condition and conviction that we will be safe when we turn in hate and fear from each other and others as opposed to the one who saving us, turns us, always, always, always turns us in love toward each other and toward the needs of others. Sisters and brothers, it is yet Advent, the church's pregnant season, as we turn expectantly to what will be and what will be is the love of God having its way with it all. Waiting for that day, expectant of that day, pregnant with hope for that day, we, 
Christ's church in the world are called to be the visible, seeable, touchable, feelable evidence of the hope and promise that where is God, there is love. Which is to say, waiting for that day, expectant of that day, pregnant with hope for that day, we until that day are called visibly, seeably, touchably, feelably, not just to know that God is love, but to, to be the hands, the feet, the eyes, the voice, the bump of God's love. O Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit among us, each of us, and all of us. May it be so, according to your word. Amen.